0: You ever read The Cain Mutiny? It's by Herman Woke. That's spelled W-O-U-K. Unfortunately, I have no idea whether Mr. Woke was alert and aware of African-American injustices over time. And that is, of course, increasingly relevant recently. No, Mr. Woke's book is about shipboard life, specifically the U.S. Navy during World War II. I had a friend and mentor on the USS Rushmore where I served aboard ship right after graduating from the Naval Academy out of San Diego. It was a gaggle of us junior officers. Gaggle seems to be only used in the military to describe a gathering uh that is maybe suspect to uh senior enlisted and senior officers junior officers are a funny breed in the shipboard navy probably specifically they carry a lot of responsibility and deliver a lot of impact for the navy and for the people they lead usually However, they are often very green and especially aboard ship, a little bit conflicted like everyone else aboard ship about whether they really want to be there or not. Anyway, the Kane Mutiny is perhaps the best description of shipboard life that I've ever heard or seen on screen or read. I've never seen the movie. I think there's actually multiple... Movies that were made based off the cane mutiny. There was an award-winning play. Not that that many people go to see plays anymore, but it was extremely popular as a a book and all the derivative works that Mister Woke created. I got the audiobook from Audible, which I'll link in the show notes, and I could not stop. Listening. Uh hopefully that's true for those of you who never served aboard ship, that you'll get the same sort of experience that I did out of it. it. It is just absolutely riveting. The character's really colorful. And this friend of mine, in many ways, uh except maybe some of the the ending parts of this character, uh, he reminded me of Lieutenant Tom Kiefer, a kind of erudite, very relaxed somewhat cynical but also a high performer uh in in the cane mutiny that's lieutenant Kiefer. so there's this gaggle of us junior officers i think we were at anchor perhaps out off of san diego waiting to go into shore the next morning when the harbor was clear and uh you you kill a lot of time in the military there's sort of a hurry up and wait culture uh that's a term of art and you uh you you kill the time with uh, lots of conversations and the SEAL teams uh you, you killed lots of time by competing on various inane games that you'd make up like throwing rocks at some target uh a little ways away for some some sort of bet uh along with uh crazy conversations as well, but this, uh, this buddy of mine somehow got on the topic of diet and this is in the early 2000s. So where we are now in terms of low carb, slow carb, keto, it was not even a dream uh, for most, most people. Uh, it was largely unheard of he was mentioning this idea that his mom had had or maybe it was more than an idea to her about how milk was bad for you. That humans weren't meant to keep drinking milk past a certain age, which does, does seem logical um, and, and historically true. However, at the time, it was completely alien and very hard To question the wisdom of drinking milk—it's good, it's nutritious. The milk does the body good. Commercials were on all the time in, in that era, and in these several decades beforehand. And obviously, beyond milk, you've got plenty of other dairy products that are delicious. I was a doubter, as were most people, but he was. Of course, it was his mom, but I think he also believed in the logic of her argument. And, of course, this is a minor example of the paleo diet. So, of course, that's me admitting that I'm not right about everything, and I've been wrong about many things, uh, (laughs) of course, uh, including the uh, wisdom of the paleo diet. I, not that I've done paleo that much, as I said in Paleo Life Part 1, the previous episode, but uh, it's been successful for a lot of people and uh, it can be a very healthy way of living. But of course, as we discussed last episode, there's a, a lot of elements of that logic of paleo that uh, does break down when you, you apply it to to the diet specifically and what you can have and and can't have and then as a thought experiment we've asked ourselves what if we applied the paleo logic meaning you should live like a caveman and not do things consume things have things that our caveman ancestors or rather hunter-gatherer ancestors uh didn't consume or or do themselves Now, before I go on, maybe there's a spiritual part of the paleo diet that I've been missing. I think while the dietary benefits may be substantiated in large part, I think I can get behind more of the kind of living in the moment, living as our ancestors did. And that is a a kind of ethos and a way of living, a lifestyle, and even a connection with nature and the more primitive versions of ourselves. I think there, there may be a lot to that, and that's, that's kind of more appealing than almost anything else about that diet to me. So while we certainly don't want to give in to the temptation of using this paleo logic to justify violence or other things that civilized life uh, has, has gone past and, and judged as not healthy or ethical. Perhaps it is truly worth revisiting whether our bodies and our minds are suited to the environment around us and the obligations we put on ourselves. TG Lee's Flavor Fresh Bottle. Keeps light out, keeps flavor in. TG Lee, taste the difference. In the book Sapiens, the author Yuval Hariri goes as far to explicitly state that we are probably much happier during our lives as hunter gatherers than once we set up agrarian societies. Our diets changed, our obligations changed and in a way all of society became risk averse once they had the ability to grow stuff they didn't want the ability to grow stuff to go away so as hariri points out people stopped moving even when it was to their detriment and they set up permanent structures, and then you needed institutions, and this is how cities grew, and then governments grew. One could argue that some sort of social compact or need necessitated governments, which can be true. However, I think most of the time, it was actually some sort of alpha male, some sort of lord who basically wanted the spoils of everyone else's work without having to do anything, even if... Promises were made of defense against enemies, explicit or implicit. It's kind of uh, the most primitive form of the gangster protection racket. The point is, though, that this move to agrarian society and civilization as we know it, despite many benefits in terms of lower violence, higher survival rates, technology, and Probably, I'm guessing, an ability of us humans to self-actualize in ways that our primitive ancestors could not dream of. This move to that sort of lifestyle for all of us and the interweb of connections to the people around us. All of this has put us on this hedonic treadmill kind of a survival treadmill because of the situation that we were in that we may not be suited to as we talked about in the first part of this episode paleo life of course we don't want to look back on a past that none of us have ever seen or will truly see except through the interpretations of archaeologists and anthropologists not everything in that time was great Obviously, we had no cure for disease, we had no steady food supply, the weather could be that much more destructive to ourselves and our families, but maybe there's a balance that we just have not been able to strike, or maybe there's an alternate framing of society, our work, our lives, that we haven't been able to truly find, but that would be much more optimal. In short, have we gotten too civilized? Effort to try and start to think about what an alternative design for society and our work and lives would be let's think about what that life was like just a little bit and in particular what our tribe would would be like. there's this uh phrase that often gets used in let's call it pop culture for work, work pop culture, whatever it is, sort of popular books, popular blogs, uh, maybe more superficial advice for career. People will say, find your tribe. This is talked about in business schools and TED Talks. There is something to tribe life though, in a way the SEAL teams, that brotherhood, is a tribe. There are tribes in the tech community. Well, I think the tech community is is so large that it's not one mega tribe, really. There's no affinity, there's no bond between two random members of the tech community, necessarily. Of course, it'll be easier for those people to talk than one of them with a Wall Street investment banker. Now, perhaps I'm wrong, (laughs) I am not an anthropologist. And I've only started to scratch the surface of what this paleo life could be or should be. But as I think about it, a tribe feels like when you're a kid with your friends outside. Now, of course, that could devolve into a Lord of the Flies situation. But when I talked about digging that hole to China with my friends in part one. This is kind of the environment that I'm thinking about. Of course, a tribe needs to survive. A tribe works together. A tribe looks after each other, but friends do too. Meanwhile, a tribe isn't necessarily building anything, at least in that hunter-gatherer society, a nomadic existence where you're not tied to a place where you follow the food supply, where there may be a leader, but they weren't elected and they need to use influence and could be toppled at any time. I think there's this overemphasis in discussions of tribal life on being alienated from the tribe. Obviously, you don't want to be alienated or banished from your tribe in that environment. You may not speak the same language as the other tribes. You may not even know where they are and they may want to kill you to steal, you know, that, that club you have or that piece of food that you caught or gathered or because they fear you. Maybe they think you're some sort of scout or maybe they just have some bloodlust. Maybe they are cannibals. And God knows how many people get lonely in modern day life And especially during a quarantine situation in a pandemic, that really hammers at home what loneliness can be like. So you don't want to be banished. At the same time, I think the nuance of social dynamics, looking at just how kids might interact, gets overlooked, right? So let's say you have this unelected leader of a tribe, and they're just a dick all the time in a certain period. Maybe because there's not enough food, maybe because there's some squabble over mates, who knows what what the why why they're a jerk, but let's say they are, of course, people could spend less time hanging around them they they could just go off in the woods in a small group they not they might not be banished from the tribe, but they can exercise their own sort of alienation of that individual, and they can. Even if there's some sort of sharing of food and preference to that alpha, you know, the first to feed sort of situation, they could shade against that person getting as much. So there's a nice kind of unofficial egalitarianism. And I would argue that that sort of emergent and organic equality amongst people is the closest point at which equality and freedom are are united. A, A lot of times equality and freedom can be at odds in modern society, but in that sort of situation, that tribal situation, people can be both equal and free. And where it's very challenging for a ruler, an institution to have absolute control. I'd suggest that modern companies build things, right? But since those tribes in that hunter-gatherer state aren't really building anything, of course, they're not advancing their situation and solving problems that can keep their kids alive. That's a problem. But when they're not building anything, they probably concentrate on what matters more. And there's not these... Big decisions that need to be made about investment of resources all the time because you don't have any resources. Your resources are your friends, your family, your tribe. You share food with each other, you share shelter with each other, you defend each other in battle, you cooperate, exchange some minor tools if you have them, ways of doing things. You watch each other's children when the other is away or when the other dies. So you have this combination of perhaps less situations that lead to strife and frustration and politics and passive aggressive behavior. You have that coupled with this bonding that can only occur today in very rare situations. Sports teams, law enforcement, the military, the operating room in a hospital, emergency department. And even though tech startups can get very close, it falls short of these kinds of bonding situations where it's life and death and you're in the person's physical space and seeing them vulnerable without their mask on almost 24-7. It's also worth thinking about that in contrast to the modern day work environment, that in a tribe, of course, you have this bond from someone that is basically forever. From the time you were born and they were born, as long as you're both alive, from that day until the day one of you dies, you are together. And you share all the same customs. You share the same religion. You know all the same people. You celebrate the same events. You have largely most of the same experiences, as a group at least. And it's probably true that when you were cold, they were cold. And when you were full from a great meal, they were full from a great meal. Of course, connecting with people from other tribes and being able to work with them is one of the things that makes us modern man that makes us civilized that enables us to create great works of art and to come up with life-saving cures and to grow more food than we need but i don't think leaders and the so-called experts have come to terms with that reality of the dissonance the disconnect between that tribal life and what is expected in the workplace it's kind of expected that everyone gels but you know that time when there's toxic people people you hate dealing with in the workplace and you do it anyway doesn't a little part of you just die inside that you feel like you're lying to yourself and just giving yourself all this anxiety and strife that you would prefer not to deal with. Of course, in a tribe, <laughs> you would be with poisonous people for life, potentially. But I, I'm arguing that that shared bond and that interdependence and the fact that you know it's a repeat game for life, You meaning... If if they screw you, you will know that forever. So, in a sense of game theory, there can be a tit for tat implementation of rewards or punishments. Or there's there's also other other models of that game, the repeat game. But uh, but that's sort of the simplest one. By the way, you should definitely see Beautiful Mind about john nash uh one of the pioneers of of game theory now before we leave this topic of our tribal nature there are two people who have talked a lot about tribes in particular one is seth godin one is james altucher and they recently did a podcast episode together i believe on james altucher's podcast i'll link to it in the show notes And there were some good nuggets there about tribes. Seth Godin says at one point tribes aren't about the alpha to the omega. Leaders always go away. The alpha person dies or moves on, but the tribe doesn't. Dot, dot, dot. Culture beats everything. Scenes have a culture, tribes have a culture. And he goes on to say how culture really determines how an organization makes decisions and how it evolves. Super relevant stuff to a lot of the topics that we talk about on The Warrior Poet. Not just the individual, but the organization. Meanwhile, he goes on to say, the Beatles didn't invent teenagers. I'm not saying we invent our tribe. We, like the Beatles, that's me, just show up to lead them. Maybe we're going too far, though. (laughs) Like like I tell people who work for me, you need to realize that about half the things I say, I'm not actually being serious about. Or you should also look at this, dear listener, as I have lots of strong opinions, but many of them, if not most of them, are loosely held in the uh, parlance of Silicon Valley. So in that vein and in the spirit of this two part series on paleo life, let's think about this. Or are we taking this concept too far? What about paleo child rearing? (laughs) What would that look like? I mean, I'm sure that going back very, very far, according to, anthropologists and probably in the book sapiens as well i can't remember i'm sure that attentive parenting was a hallmark of the human species or hominids generally and we can see that in apes that are related to us chimpanzees nurture their children and we as humans have long cycles of sort of infancy or helplessness as children before we can fend for ourselves right so it requires that parenting granted if our if our benchmark is how animals take care of their young they're much more free-range children in uh the saying of of today among parents than they are you know sort of like children being parented by helicopter moms and dads. There was no Dr. Spock, which was the main book parents used in the late 20th century to figure out how to parent. There's many more resources now, but there were no resources like that back then. And chances are your style of parenting was just dictated by your tribe and you didn't consider alternatives. So if corporal punishment was extremely severe in that culture, chances are you were going to perpetuate that. As we've talked about on the podcast before, we are products of our environment. And side note, James Clear has a lot of great thoughts, tips, tricks on how to harness that fact to your success by creating an environment that is conducive to your success of course there were no schools there were no haircuts there were no doctors there were no vitamins <laughs> i mean there were not even any clothes to shelter your child so paleo child would be very different than it is today aside from the health benefits and the education benefits maybe we should ask ourselves whether our modern day conceptions are really better than what our extremely primitive forebears would have done. What would paleo school be like? Like, how could we change school to be more caveman, be more hunter gatherer? I'm actually really passionate about this. And if I had parallel lives, I would start a school where most of the time was spent outside in small groups doing projects outside. I think that that is much more compatible with the learning styles, the energy, the daily routines, and the preferred way of behaving and socializing that kids naturally have at that age just based upon their DNA rather than trying to fit them into a mold that has come down before us. and i I've, I've said before that a lot of our institutions are based upon the military in the private sector, in the workplace. I confess I haven't done a lot of research on where schools came from in their current form, but I strongly suspect that the church religion generally and the military uh, and that sort of training, um were largely responsible for its current form. But feel free, DM me on Instagram at Shree the Warrior Poet if you have more knowledge than I do on this subject. Meanwhile, let's take a long, thoughtful pause and think about what paleo finance would be like. It's so easy to use Geico.com, a caveman could do it. What? <laughs> Not cool. I did not know you were there. I can know I can change. I contend we are wired to win. That in most people, at least those who have alpha personalities, type A people, we are wired to win whatever game is before us. Whatever that environment we're in, we're trying to figure out how to optimize our performance within it and defeat. Our competitors. Now, we certainly collaborate with those in our tribe, but we still want to win. And we want that equality and freedom, that intersection that can only appear in the tribe, at least as I've speculated earlier in this episode. Yet we find ourselves in organizations, whether we're at the top or whether we're in the middle, whether we're at the bottom, we find ourselves in organizations that value what I'll call comedy, the ability to get along over almost everything else. If you think about it, no one will admit that fact, but organizations inevitably value the sustenance of that organization in its current form more than anything else. And that's often is even despite maybe the CEO or founder of a company wanting it to change, wanting it to innovate. We've talked about the innovator's dilemma here before by Clay Christensen and how cash cow companies stay stuck even though the board of directors and the CEO of this profitable corporation want it to evolve, to stay competitive in the marketplace, to deliver new product offerings. What will happen then is that People who rock the boat, people who question the true innovators, those who ask why. We talked a lot about asking why in Granted Part One and Part Two not too long ago. Those people who ask why tend to be seen as disrupting the sustenance of that organization and thus are outcast. Or worse, oftentimes, the valuing of comedy at all costs means that those who throw the first punch are often rewarded, or at least the incentive is to throw the first punch because the conflict arises, the friction arises, when someone in the workplace, obviously not physically, but someone in the workplace responds to an asshole. Everyone has a plan they get punched in the mouth. I myself have run into this problem in numerous places because I do not suffer fools well. And when someone's an asshole, I call them out to it. I don't yield to them being that asshole. Now, granted, we all have to deal with people we don't like. I'm not saying that a Navy SEAL officer, or yours truly, cannot handle that. Especially in a collaborative environment. But again, it, it, nonetheless, those environments that value collaboration at all costs really allow poisonous actors to fester. Interestingly, what you have then is an organization that has developed implicit aims on its own. And one thing we can ask ourselves, I don't have the answer, is whether this is kind of an inevitability. Whenever you get people together and it's a day in and day out activity, does this tend to happen? I think it's it's very likely that it, it does unless it's a more sort of tribal or friendly atmosphere. And even then, maybe maybe the point is that, of course, the tribe wants itself to persist, but the nature of the corporation as this ongoing entity into perpetuity that survives everyone in it, kind of like Seth Godin was saying, culture survives the passing of leaders. Here, the corporation survives the churn and deaths, whether figurative or literal, of all its participants all its shareholders until it goes out of business, that that perpetuity where people are together and, of course, innovators dilemma, big profitable corporations hire different people than in the beginning. And those different people tend to be a little older, tend to be more experienced, but also tend to be much more risk averse and are likely to stick around for a lot longer. And so that also creates this desire to be comfortable with the status quo. And that may work for a lot of people, but I ask, is that actually in the best interest of the organization itself as it was set up in the beginning? Is it in the best interest of shareholders? Is it in the best interest of even the individuals? Not sure. I am fairly certain it's not in the best interest of customers or whatever Maybe that non-profit aim is. It's so easy to use Geico.com, a caveman could do it. (laughs) What's that supposed to mean? Do you hear that? That is really condescending. Sun Tzu in The Art of War says, victorious warriors win first and then go to war, while defeated warriors go to war first, then seek to win. I want to be very clear. I'm not advocating going to war in the workplace, far from it. I think what was surprising to me after I got out of the military and in the ensuing years after business school was that everyone who told me the private sector is different. People in the private sector are different and in sort of the quotes that were used, have no ethics, have no character. I was surprised to find out how right they were. Obviously, it's a generalization. I'm not saying that none of you in this audience have ethics, but there are far too many people who don't and who view the workplace as a way to feed their ego and serve their own ambition. And perhaps we're all guilty of that a little bit, just not to the extent of political manipulation and unethical behavior. Of course, if we are wired to win, that butts heads with this idea of the organization sustaining itself at all costs. And it also goes against the fact that we're working in a faux tribe, a pseudo tribe, people that we weren't born with and won't die with We're not watching their children most of the time, especially when on Zoom calls during a pandemic. We're not in their physical space. And I've never almost rarely been in the physical space of someone in the workplace, in the private sector, like I have in the military, and especially like folks have in more tribal times. That Sun Tzu quote is interesting because... The reality is, even though I think individuals are wired to win, especially type A ambitious people like like most of you are here, most of us are. That even though we might be wired to win at a core level as individuals. Most people in the workplace are probably like those defeated warriors who go to war first and then seek to win. When you enter an organization or you enter an industry, you're accepting the status quo in many ways, probably many more ways than you realize. Even if you have a very innovative startup, a lot of things, because you need to constrain the problem, you need to act, you can't boil the ocean, a lot of things are accepted. But this is more true than ever when you're entering someone else's company. You can only change so much. And so having some sort of game plan is extremely limited in scope about what you can actually affect. And in reality, you learn about what that faux tribe is like. You learn the rules of this game and then you react. And so you have this kind of reactive planning and you're not evolving as an individual You're not changing the game as we've emphasized numerous times on this podcast. You're just kind of reactively planning. I kind of call this provolving versus evolving. You're looking forward and you're adapting yourself, but in ways that accept the game ahead of you as it is. I just wonder to what degree is this path dependent? When we talk about something that's path dependent, we mean that your future options are dependent on your previous options. It's kind of like a choose your own adventure novel, which by the way, when we talk about novel coronavirus, I'm waiting for a short story coronavirus. <laughs> Seriously, we apologize. We had no idea you guys were still around. Yeah, next time maybe do a little research. Gentlemen, are we ready to order? I'll have the roast duck with the mango salsa? I don't have much of an appetite, thank you. But anyway, in that path-dependent kind of planning, you're accepting the game, you're adapting yourself to that game not really developing as an individual, just morphing yourself, changing your shape. And when you alter this morphology, you come up with a sort of positive shape that fits the environment. People will call this a, a U morphology, EU morphology. But I worry that because you've changed your shape, you're not an octopus, you're not a chameleon who's just changing colors all the time. Remember, this is path dependent. You've changed the wires in your brain over time and they've been cemented, these pathways and scripts. We've talked about scripts before on the podcast. They get cemented and they change who you are so that the change may be permanent because you've reactively planned, you've provolved into some monstrosity. There are no U-turns. And you've created a freak that doesn't exist in the wild. How could it be offensive if it's true? Okay, first of all, I'm not 100% in love with your tone right now. Tone aside, historically, you guys have struggled to adapt. Yeah, right. Walking upright, discovering fire, inventing the wheel, laying the foundation for all mankind. You're right. Good point. Sorry we couldn't get that to you sooner. Connie, your reaction? Sounds like someone woke up on the wrong side of the rock. Geico. Here we are again, all the way wet. I've got a book here that I've been reading called True Love, A Practice for Awakening in the Heart. It's by a Buddhist monk named, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, Thich Nhat Han. I believe that is Vietnamese, or at least it looks like it. I'll probably follow up on Instagram because I'm interested myself in learning more about the author. The quote is, being rich is an obstacle to loving. When you are rich, you want to continue to be rich. And so you end up devoting all your time, all your energy in your daily life to staying rich. And I think that relates heavily to that risk aversion that we evolved to once we became agrarian societies, and again, hat tip to Yuval Hariri and Sapiens for really hammering that concept home. What the author of the book True Love is using this explanation of how being rich can be an obstacle to loving. He's talking about a child who's asked what he would like for his birthday. I suppose the boy is twelve years old this could be a fictitious story who knows or a parable but the boy is asked what he wants for his birthday and he doesn't know how to answer his father who's very rich who could buy anything but basically the boy just asks for his father's presence and i think for a lot of us that can be a really humbling story and and, and principle that ties together the notions of of paleo existence with our current day lives and even if we can't change the workplace we can become more mindful and change those personal aspects to in all the good ways be more tribal in closing don't forget you may be wired to win And to many of us, winning the game can mean passing the test, right? This is part of what I call treats syndrome. And the often most successful people in childhood get in this cycle where it's just how do I play this structured game when it's really an infinite game out there? You may think you just need to get that offer get that promotion, do that new project, take that job that's in front of you. You might even have a plan, but then you and your tribal self might just get punched in the mouth. If you like The Warrior Poet, there's more great content on Instagram. Follow Sri, the Warrior Poet, on Instagram. That's S-R-I, the Warrior Poet. You can also get to know me on a personal level by following Sri, actually, on Instagram as well. The Warrior Poet is produced by Laddie, with special contributions by Spoonman and me. No, 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 no. Kevin, me na Spita.